Hello everyone and welcome to Ultimate Motorcycling's podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week's episode is brought to you by Yamaha. The YZF-R7 lives up to its legendary name as a high-performance supersport machine. Check it out at your local Yamaha dealer or, of course, at yamahamotorsports.com. In this week's first segment, editor Don Williams and I chat about electric motorcycles and the electric bike revolution that is likely the future of motorcycling. Actually, this episode is specifically about Honda's new CRF E2. It's an electric dirt bike for kids. We asked our tester, eight-year-old Avery Bart, to put the E2 through its paces, and according to Don, she absolutely loved it. Honda has stated that the company goal is for 50% of its motorcycle sales to be electric by 2030. That's a pretty ambitious goal for sure, and the CRF E2 is the first step in that direction. In the second segment, I chat with one of my Aussie motorcycle industry friends, Dale Schmidchen. Dale has worked for most of the major moto factories globally during his career, and his take on his CF Moto ADV bike is pretty interesting. Beyond that, one of his many projects is currently helping to sell the world's most expensive motorcycle, a Harley V Rod worth around $50 million. Yes, that's $50 million with an M. Dale also owned a race team in the 1990s and helped bring several well-known Aussie racers to the world stage. He's a very modest, matter-of-fact guy, but I always really enjoy chatting with him. I hope you enjoy listening. Incidentally, if you've got around $50 million burning a hole in your pocket and you fancy owning the so-called Mona Lisa of motorbikes, contact us at producer at ultimatemotorcycling.com and we'll put you in touch with Dale. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoyed this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully-fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Yes, this week's it's uh, something a little different. It's the first electric motorcycle from Honda. And if you're expecting something really revolutionary, you're going to be a bit disappointed because it's a motorcycle made for kids. It's a dirt bike. And it's not actually made by Honda. <laughs> but actually, uh, that's, that's part of the interesting part of the story is that Honda has decided to get into the electric motorcycle market, but not with the motorcycle that they designed. And 
you kind of think of Honda as somebody who would never do that, like have somebody else build a bike for them and then they slap their name on it. And it wasn't, it wasn't quite that one-sided. Uh, this company, Granger in California, they've been building electric powered vehicles, you know, small vehicles for, for decades. So they're well-versed in this. And Honda apparently had looked around, tried a bunch of different companies and decided that these guys were the guys to go with. Uh, and Greenger has uh, patents of their own. So they have, you know, whatever specific things that are unique to their, their bikes. So Honda also did some R&D work with Greenger. So it wasn't like Greenger built this bike. Honda came in with some stickers, stuck stickers on it and said, it's a Honda. Uh, Honda did participate in the, the development of the motorcycle, although they don't manufacture it. Greenger does the manufacturing and uh, did most of the design work but not all of it. So uh, when you look at the, the little bike, it looks cool. I mean, it looks, it's called the CRF E2. Uh, I don't know what happened to the E1, but this is the CRF E2. And uh, it looks great. It looks like a little CRF with an, you know, a big black electric battery and motor holder. It has a twin spar aluminum frame, just like the big boys, aluminum swing arm, front and rear disc brakes, which is something you don't normally see in a bike this size. So this is a real, it's a real motorcycle. I mean, it's got all the pieces that you would expect to see on a, an adult dirt bike, but on a bike that's made for kids. And part of, you know, the sizing of the bike is interesting because the Honda Sierra 50F is the smallest little Honda mini bike. And that's for the youngest kids coming in, usually around age six, maybe five, sometimes younger. Uh, and then they have the CRF 110F, which is the next step up. You know, just again, it's for kids who just get bigger, outgrow the 50. Well, in this case, this E2 fits right between those two. It's closer to the 110 than the 50, but it's not a little teeny bike. You know, it's a, it's a bigger bike. I mean, as an adult, you know, I, of course, couldn't resist sitting on it and then going for a spin. And, you know, the suspension, I pretty much bottomed it out. You know, I weigh 155 pounds. I bottomed it out almost by just sitting on it, which is good because you, that makes that tells me that it's not you know too stiff for a kid. But the one thing I did find out just from my experience riding it, it it's it has two power modes, it has a you know a soft mode and, and a more aggressive mode. In the aggressive mode, this thing hauls butt with me on it. <laughs> you know, I'm like, whoa, wow. You know, I and you know, I was out in the street, you know, being a responsible member of society, and. Uh, <laughs> turn a throttle on that thing and it just took off and I was like wow that's impressive you know like, I can only imagine how great this is for a kid but fortunately there's two modes so there's the, the more friendly kid mode so you have this this motorcycle uh that Honda is selling at Honda dealers you know you remember probably the old Kawasaki plastic ATVs they had plastic wheels plastic you had little electric motor the thing went like five miles an hour and they sold them at Walmart and target and wherever they could sell them you know right. this is not that this is not that sort of thing this is a legit motorcycle it has Ken kenda uh, millville two tires you know real legit tires legit suspension disc brakes it's it, aluminum frame it's it's cool so this is a legit motorcycle that honda sells only at honda dealers so you know when i wrote the review up for the uh, website for the magazine I just call it a Honda CRF E2. 
Granger's name is kind of is associated with the official name of it, but nobody's going to call it that. I mean, they have they have a little sticker on the side that says Granger, but this E2 CRF is way bigger. The Honda wing is on the front fender, Honda name on the seat. It's a, I'll just it's a Honda. You know, it's it's a bike that that they sell as a Honda, and when people go into a dealer to buy it, they're going to be buying what they consider to be a Honda. So we, we you know, took our little test rider, Avery out. She's eight and about 48 pounds. And uh, she's an experienced rider, but she's not like a racer. And also Honda and Greens are very clear to say that this is not a race bike. Uh, KTM has a, an electric mini that they market as ready to race, of course, because that's the, the KTM way. This Honda, there's not talking about racing it, but you know, people are going to race anything they can get their hands on and with that power it has in the in the in the in the uh, more aggressive mode everything's going to going to go good now we haven't done our own individual test of the, the ktm and you really have to have them back to back to to know which one is faster but they are both fast so but this bike they don't want you to you know consider a race bike they want you to consider a, a recreational vehicle and so Avery, who we got, we didn't get a race kid. We got a kid in trail rides. And she's done tests for us before. Uh, DRZ, Suzuki DRZ 50, Yamaha TTR uh, 50, and uh, the Yamaha PW50. So she's, she has experience as a test rider. You know, she knows, you know, she knows how to tell us what she thinks. And, you know, we do a lot of the testing. But for kids' bikes, a lot of the testing is, adult, is adults. We watch them. And you can tell, you can learn a lot if you know what to look for by watching a kid ride and, and what's happening and then asking them certain questions, try to get them out of the yes, no, oh, I don't know, or yeah, it's great. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's hard to get kids to, you know, they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to disappoint you. They don't want to get mad at them, you know, so they're just kind of like, yeah, it's great. Everything's great. It's like, well, what about this? And oh, well, yeah. But anyway, we sent her out, and, you know, we had her do some test rides and we watched her and it was clear she was having fun. And now, again, here's a young rider who's comfortable on two strokes and four strokes. Uh, you know, she jumps the bike. She zips around up and down hills, not big hills, but big hills. And uh, she loved it. She, you know, I think this is, <laughs> dad's going to have to kick down for one of these because uh, it's, it's pretty cool. And kids really do take to the electric motor vibe. <laughs> Or lack of vibe, depending on how you look at it. Really, that's that's interesting. So she really preferred it to any of the you know combustion bikes that she rode. Absolutely. Huh. We had you know we had a Yamaha TTR fifty, which is a little you know she's kind of about to grow out of. But a lot of kids, I mean, there are going to be kids that are racers, and they're going to want you know whatever's fastest, whatever makes the much moist noise, and and there's that subgroup of kids. But the most kids, they really like the fact that it doesn't make this kind of scary noise and you just turn the throttle. There's no gear shifter, you know, on these other bikes, you know, there's the gear shifter and the gear shifters in kids, boots and kids, it's always a pain. You know, it's not, we take gear shifting for granted how easy it is for kids. Whenever we are doing kid tests, when they have to shift, you know, they can shift down because they stomp on it. Like it's a snake, <laughs> but the upshifts, it's hard for them to get their little boots under them. It's an interesting thing. So she really liked the fact that you just get on it. You don't have to start it. And there's another problem. You know, you have other bikes where you have to kickstart them or you have to push the electric, electric start button. Those bikes aren't 
fuel injected necessarily. Some of them are, some aren't. The ones that aren't, you have to learn how to adjust the throttle or maybe pull the choke. There's all sorts of things involved in getting going that is not, that are like barriers to entry that kids don't want. Kids want to be like adults. <laughs> they want things to be easy. So they just get on it. You turn the, you turn the key on, you hit the on button. And then when they twist the throttle, off they go. Well, that's great. There's no, well, I can't get it to start. Oh, it's kind of, it's idling kind of low. Oh, it keeps dying on me. You know, that's uh, mini, with minis, that's a problem. You know, the, the centrifugal clutch can maybe not catch in on time and the bike dies. Or there's always, you know, oh, the jets are clogged because the bike hasn't been ridden for a month. It's a zillion things. This bike, you get on it, right. push the button, twist the throttle, away you go, and you go good. And it has, it, the bike handles really well. Watching her ride it is just like, wow, this is cool. And the suspension moves, you know, it's not overly stiff for her, 48 pounds. So it was moving and she was doing little, little jumps, you know, because she was getting used to it. Kids, in our experience, again, we don't get the race kids, we get normal kids. They don't adapt to bikes as quickly as you and I do. You know, we get on the bike, we, we get it. Sure. And for them, it's still like, oh, okay. But she adapted to this really quickly. Like the idea that you just twist the throttle and it's, it's a very, you know, intuitive twist. It's not like, you know, it's, when you twist a throttle on a, on a internal combustion engine, there's like kind of a lag of when it, you twist it and then when things happen. Of course, for sure. The revs have to come up, the, you know, fly blasts get spinning, all these things have to happen. And this is just, you twist the throttle, boom, you're gone. Now, I will say this, I was disappointed uh, in the software of the, that they built for this in the controller for the electric motor, because what it's lacking is adjustability. There's, there's two modes, but that's it. To me, when I'm watching Avery, she's trying to, let's say, make a U-turn in a tight area. That throttle, even in the, in the, in the soft mode, was not super smooth off idle idle but actually it is idle when you think about it the bike isn't moving it's idle right <laughs> so, there's very literal interpretation but okay yeah isn't that funny it's actually it's, it actually works better than the electric bike yeah so when she would crack the throttle it would kind of jump you know it wasn't like this smooth it wasn't completely smooth right off that initial crack and i was to me the bike should have like one of those little bluetooth apps where you where you could sort of dial it down a little bit you can right dial the sensitivity down yeah right you would have a, a, an app and you'd have two things you could control yeah you control the, the the amount of power and the throttle response yeah so that if you put that thing at you know the lowest throttle response and the least power it would barely move it would move right and then you can ramp the kid up and say okay next time they're gone i'll give them a little more power give them a little bit more throttle response Actually, I totally get it because uh, we have a couple of, you know, those Chinese electric bicycles and they actually have a throttle mode as well as, you know, pedal assist. So actually, you can't really move off the line by pedaling them. You have to use the throttle. And it's exactly the same thing. Even on the softest, no matter how gentle you are, it definitely can... I mean, electric motor produces 100% of torque in its first revolution. So it's really difficult to get it very soft. And if you're trying to do a, a, a sort of turn the bike around and you sort of touch the throttle, it can definitely get away from you. But actually, the, the bicycles have like a walk mode. 
So you can click a button and if you want to be able to walk next to the, the bicycle, if you're like going up a ramp or something and you want to be able to walk the thing up the ramp, you can do that. And so it's almost like this, the uh, CRF E2 should have something like that where you could have like a beginner mode. Yeah, but like I said, I'd, I'd, instead of like preset modes, I'd like to have like a little slider. You know, one end it says lowest possible power and at the other end it's high power. And then you move that slider to whatever numbers position you want. And then same with throttle response, yeah. you know, super slow throttle response so the kid could whip it wide open and then they would just crawl out, you know. <laughs> but you, maybe right. you could have it in the super slow throttle response, but the highest power mode. So if they could whip that throttle wide open, it won't get going fast, but it will eventually eventually will get there, you know, or you could have, right. you know, whatever in between works for you and works for your kid. And there's one other feature that I really wish it had. And, and I've seen it on mini ATVs, but I've seen it on motorcycles, but I wish it had a remote kill switch. So if dad or mom is watching and the kid's going off toward a cliff or a big boulder or something, they kill the butt, kill the engine. Right. And, you know, something like this would be perfect for that because, it, you know, the electric one's really easy to do that. And then that way, if or if the kid starts mouthing off, you go, oh, I do look, I hit the kill button. You're not riding anymore. Right. And then the kid will learn a little lesson about behavior and everybody's happier afterwards. <laughs> Actually, that'd be a great idea. You could they could do that with Bluetooth, you would think. Oh, yeah. Not that Avery would ever need that because she really is a delightful little girl. Really good. Great parents. So, you know, you have great parents. You have the good genes and the good kid and you're brought up nicely and you have them ride dirt bikes. You've got a good kid. Right. So, you know, the bike to me is revolutionary in kind of odd ways. One is that Honda had somebody else build this bike for them. I mean, it's, it's equivalent of Honda having zero build them a bike. Right. You know, in the first Honda street bike, is a zero but it says honda all over it and then there's like a one sticker that says zero you know that could happen or some other company because we, we have seen pictures of a honda full-size electric motocrosser just pictures mock-up you know it's not a, a done deal by any stretch of the imagination but you know honda is clearly working on that but it, for this first try that first step into the world of electric motorcycle they decided to go with another company's product that they helped you know in the you know final development let's say i read recently that um honda have said that they want 50 percent of their motorcycles to be electric powered by 2030 okay so that's still that's still eight years away but but that's pretty ambitious i would say i mean that's that's quite impressive yeah since they're at zero now you know. <laughs> well then no longer are they at zero yeah, sort of. Anyway, th for me, that's a really big part of the story of this bike. It's not so much about how it works, how do the brakes work, and the brakes work. Everything works good. Suspension works good. The brakes work good. The ergonomics are good. Uh, the height, the seat height is slightly adjustable, not, I think it's like a half inch or something, not th nothing big. And they do it just by moving the shock. But it's a Honda. Of course it is. Yeah. So, and the ergonomics are perfect right off the bat. That's probably one of the things that Honda came in on and said, here's how you make the ergonomics just right. Well, of course, the big, the big question is that, that you and I always talk about with these electric bikes is what is the range like? Well, can a kid ride this thing all day? That's a that's an impossible question to answer. It's an easy question to ask, but a hard one to answer. And as we know, it's not so much true with electric cars, but it, a lot of it depends on how you ride it and who's right. How heavy is the kid? 
is the kid going up hills, doing hill climbs all day. The kid's doing, if the big kid, uh, and the weight limit on this is 99 pounds, which is fairly big. If, if a kid was doing you know hill climbs out at Jawbone Canyon all day, I think he'd run that battery out pretty quick. But if you have a, a small kid, you know, kind of at the, the lower cusp of what this works for, they could probably ride around all day, you know, on flat ground and it would be fine. Okay. Every time we took her out, you know, she was able to ride it as long as she wanted to ride it and it never got below half. So it's really hard to say, you know, it, it, it's like, it depends so much on the terrain and the rider, the aggressiveness of the rider, what they're doing, you know, how many, if their kid decided he was going to race it, I'm sure if he was going to race it, it would, it would last the number of laps that we'd have in a day of racing. It, it, it just, you know, there's pretty good ability there. And also the, the bike costs 29.50 which isn't bad not cheap in the mini world but not you know stratospherically expensive either and uh you can get an additional battery for another thousand dollars and it's a quick swap you just pop off the seat pull it out throw the other battery in oh really okay but it's another thousand dollars you know that you gotta kick down you know and i was thinking well Let's say you have a couple of kids riding it. Maybe you could run it out and that that would be something that you would want. Or maybe you're going away for a couple of days and bringing a generator to charge it or something isn't, you know, it just uses a normal charger, you know, normal outlet. You just plug it in. There's no, there's no, uh, there's going to be some kind of quick charger thing, but it's not out yet. Anyway, with adults, we're always run, running out of fuel on or electrons on these electric bikes when you go riding them. You know, the the live wire. Right. It was pretty disappointing to me. You know, we have a hundred mile loop that we use all the time for testing uh, street bikes that include, you know, canyons, uphill, downhill, fast, slow, you know, some city. So all sorts of stuff. And the live wire was supposed to get a hundred miles. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is a hundred miles. We'll see how it does. If it, when I got to the kind of no turnaround point where if I went one way, I'd be, I'd be in for the hundred miles or I go back towards home. It was well past half used up. Right. Yeah. So that's not in the zeros have always disappointed me with a range. I mean, they're fun bikes to ride. They're cool, but they don't have the range that I want in a motorcycle, but for kids riding around, you know, with some OHV area or, you know, they're not doing you know, bike like this is not a big, like single track trails where you're climbing the big gnarly hills and you're doing, it's not for that. It's just for trail riding around. It may be some single track, but it would be super easy single track. And from our experience that that battery would pretty much last as long as the kid would last during a day. But if you get, you get it and the kid runs the battery out a couple of times, well, you just, you know, keeping your mind that you might have to spend another thousand bucks so that he can do a pit stop and get a, a fresh battery in there. Yeah. Even then, at that price, it's still cheaper than the KTM SX5E, I think they call it. And that bike, you know, is like 5000 But it's a pretty sophisticated bike, you know. And not that this isn't sophisticated, but that's, you know, it's like another level. But they're intending it as like a race bike, super high end. Sure. So this bike would be, you know, just under four with a second battery, which would give it a far more range than the KTM. So it's, it's kind of hard to compare them because they're, they're on different missions. You know, the Honda is like, Hey kids, come ride this. It's cool. Be ride a motorcycle. Right. And the KTM is like, Hey kids, let's go learn how to do whips and scrubs and triples. And it's like, okay, that's great too. And it's great to have both 
you know, so you have a kid who can grow up on this. And then if he decides to go to the KTM, the experience will be there, ready to go, understand electric power. Yeah, sure. Kids like electric vehicles. They're just naturally attracted to the simplicity. They, they understand them. Yeah. You know, a kid cannot explain anything about a two-stroke motor yeah. or a four-stroke motor. Right. They just know that if they twist it, it makes some noise and then things start to happen. The electric, they get. Their toothbrush is electric. They know when they push the button, it starts to move. And so they get all those things that they wouldn't get with a normal powered motor. What's the weight on this like? Is it is it comparable to the combustion engines? Is it about similar? I mean, I'm sure we don't have exact weights, but... Oh, yes, we do. And I'm glad you asked that question because I should have talked about that. <laughs> One amazing thing about this is even though it's closer in size to the 110 than the 50, it weighs about the same as the 50 and it's like 60 pounds less than the 110. Wow. That is a huge, huge difference. We're, we're kind of used to electric bikes as being heavier. Sure. That's why I asked. Like think about Moto E. They're running around on those things and it's like, they're always blowing corners. Well, yeah, the bike weighs 500 pounds. Right. This is not that. And that means the kid can pick the bike up and the kid won't get burned by an exhaust pipe or a hot motor or something else. You know, it's it's a safer, it's a safer vehicle, no doubt about it. The one little caveat for kids, when you, if you have a kid, you really truly want to go trail riding. It has 12 inch rims front and back, and it really should have a 12 and a 14. I'm not sure why they went with the same size wheels on both ends you need you know a larger wheel in the front to roll over the obstacles easier it's okay it, 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 it could have been worse it could, it could have been 10 inches which are the smallest rims so the 12s are a little better they're spoke wheels that look like the adults you know right but a, a 12 and 14 combo i i think would be the hot setup and probably some people sell that to to adults but yeah the the whole thing with the weight was like really wow you know when i was first doing little comparisons of that it uh yeah it's amazing i wonder if they'll make a, a sort of a big wheel version for you know teenagers or yeah i think that you know it will depend on how popular this is you know when they the, the next step up would be the equivalent of like a crf 125 sure f which is it's like 14 and 16 wheel, inch wheels and you know then you start to get the high quality rubber and you can really ride those bikes a lot of places. And again, I think that would be hugely popular with the kind of people who ride trail bikes. Yeah. Because if you just ride around, you're having fun. You'd want something that's simple, easy to understand, easy to use, requires pretty much zero maintenance. Yeah. I mean, like, what would you do on this bike? I guess you have to lube and adjust the chain once every hundred billion years. I, I would assume that 20 years from now every one of these bikes is going to have the same brake fluid in it that it did you know the hydraulic lines that it did when they sold it because <laughs> how you know how hard is that going to be used all that stuff's going to work honda's overseeing this you know they put their name on it they're not going to put their name on something that's going to make them look bad right right for sure. so and the bike has like really nice foot pegs things like that grips bars all this all the detailed stuff on that is high quality stuff now, there's no foot control. There's no uh, shift lever or brake pedal, both brakes, both hydraulic disc brakes. And they're not just, you know, cable disc. Their hydraulic disc are, are both hand brakes. So, which eh, I kind of have a little, I, I kind of like having a foot brake because then I can keep a better grip on the bars. You know, if you want to actuate both brakes at the same time, you're ne neither hand is going to have a full grip of the bar. So, um, okay. 
right but you know that's all stuff to be worked out but uh yeah the bike is is outstanding for three thousand dollars which again isn't cheap but isn't prohibitively expensive by any stretch of the imagination even with the other thousand if you have a kid who just will not get off the bike which is cool i mean if you do to me if you have a kid you buy this bike and the kid rides it till the battery's dead you have you this bike is a huge success right there you know because there would have been a lot that would have been a lot of riding and that means the kid loves it so everybody's happy and you don't have to you know worry about rebuilding the engine or the spark plug fouling or the EFI going out, not that that's usually a problem, or but uh, the carbureted bikes, you know, jets get clogged, uh, you don't have to worry about chokes, none of this stuff, electric start, none of it. It's great. It's all, it's it's cool. And it makes me, as an adult, like more appreciative of the concept of off an electric dirt bike. I'm still kind of not there, mainly because in, I need to, I need to be, I need to ride somewhere I go, okay, this works. This works the way I want it to go. This 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 meets my expectations of what going riding is about. The live wire did that for the street. To me, ride that bike on the street, it's pretty cool. Right. It goes good. Yeah, it's heavy. You kind of don't notice that so much because there's so much torque from the motor. But yeah, when it's time to put on the brakes, you notice that you're on a heavier bike than you would be otherwise. But again, it's not a super bike. You know, it's not a super sport bike. It's an upright naked. So, you know, you ride with a little bit more judicious throttle you know there's but that bike makes me like yeah i could ride this this is cool i like it i wish it had a battery that would run all day like this one of the honda Serif e2 would but the they've kind of proven the concept with the bikes like the livewire and the zeros i mean the first the first electric bikes we rode were terrible you know they broke they overheated they had like no range and we've come a long way baby on that one and so those those are all bikes that you know okay we're getting there and this bike for the dirt bike well at least for kids it's like if i were if i had a kid i would just get this unless the kid was just saying, oh, no, no, bad. I the bike it goes <laughs> you know like yours does and it'd be like okay okay we'll get you that but I bet if that kid rode this, the kid would go, well, dad, I kind of like the electric one, <laughs> you know, which I wouldn't blame him. I'd be like, hey, you're a smart kid, you know, chip off the old block there. So, uh, again, it's a revolutionary motorcycle without being obviously revolutionary. And, and it's, you know, the first Honda electric bike. It's a bike not built by Honda, but built to Honda's standards and sold exclusively to Honda dealers. So pretty cool yeah that's that's awesome you know how much fun that uh that tj and i had um last year on the you know the kawasaki the, the you know the little um trail bike you know the klx 230 um you know and the yamaha tw i mean we absolutely loved it riding around on the fire roads and and that sort of thing so uh, for me it's really a pretty short step to go from sort of this kid's bike to go to a slightly bigger version with you know big wheels that can carry an adult oh yeah I, I don't know what else they're going to need to do in terms of motor and battery power but you know but I, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a big leap and i can't wait for that that'd be awesome yeah i mean i hope they still make you know internal combustion bikes for kids who want them yeah again I, i'm not 100 sold but i'm the sales pitch is working on me and uh, a bike like this really helps with 
acceptance of that as, as like something that'll be cool in the future. Not yet. <laughs> Arthur, do you ever watch the Moto E races? Yes. Yes. Actually, it's quite good racing. It's actually really good racing. Yes. But the guy who announces them is just ridiculous. <laughs> He's just, everything is, this is the most dramatic thing in the history of two-wheel motorcycle racing. I kind of figure that, that the commentator has to make a lot of noise because the bikes aren't. Right. <laughs> just so, it's just so oh everything is oversold you know it's just like yeah just let it be it's it, this is something development it's an eight lap race it's okay to say oh wow that was great look what happened like oh my god i will never forget this for the rest <laughs> of my life it's like no you'll forget it tomorrow <laughs> yeah. you know right. when the best riders in the world are on them then it will matter that's when that's the day the universe changes yeah, yeah. you know when when you have Mark Marquez and Quateraro, whoever else. Yeah. Yeah. Quateraro, Bagnaya, when they're all of a sudden on these, on electric bike, racing electric bike, everybody's going to want an electric bike. Right. <laughs> That's true. But until they are, they're not going to want to, you know, they're, they're just going to be people who are going to say, oh, yeah, I want an electric bike because it's cool. Yeah. But, and they have used, I mean, for me, an electric bike, if you live in the city, I don't know why every scooter in the world is an electric scooter. Right. You know, I would I would think that was a market where bang. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because you don't you, the range doesn't matter. You're not going far enough to exhaust any reasonable size battery. A lot of the emerging economies, a lot of their bikes are electric. And that's what we're what we're sort of hearing. Yeah. George Park Haber came on the podcast, said that, you know, everybody's riding electric bikes now. in you know, some of uh, some of these far eastern eastern cities. So it's 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 definitely there. And the and the electric bicycles that it, that I told you that we've got, we absolutely love them. I mean, we use them all the time. Yeah, the the Pell Assist e bikes are pretty cool. They are really, they're really, and these are just cheap, 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 cheap. A few hundred bucks each for for these, you know, electric assist bikes. Do you remember that electric scooter we had when we were at Rob Report? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing was great, and it had regenerative braking. Where the Vectrix, I think it was called, wasn't it? Yeah, I remember. But you move the throttle forward for braking. Yeah. And it's like, that works so well, you never need to touch the brakes. Yep. You know, unless if you planned ahead at all, you would never touch the brakes on that thing. So those brakes would last, you You, you would have 100,000 miles and the brake pads would still be fresh. Yeah, the the, uh, the Mission <laughs> Electric, remember Mission Electric Bikes? Oh yeah. Remember I rode that thing on the crest? That was the same way. It had a sort of a detent in the, in the throttle. And you roll it forward and you get braking. Yeah, yesterday. And it was like the ultimately sensitive brake system. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, yesterday, Kellen, I went by that corner that I shot you at. And I said, hey, this is where we shot that Arthur on that electric bike that came from Pro Italia. Too bad it needed to be charged by the time it got from Pro Italia to the top of the... <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. To this corner. Right. You know, and that was kind of the problem with that thing. Yeah. Was the range on it was just nothing. If you rode it like Arthur rides, which is, you know... <laughs> wide full open which is which is which is great but that yeah that was uh pretty funny yeah i mean seriously it was not that far to where we were and after you did a few passes you're like oh we're almost out of electrons <laughs> and i'm like oh okay better get back, get back. Luckily, it was all downhill back <laughs> right right but in terms of the way it rode i i was very impressed so yeah i mean electric bikes clearly it is the it is going to be the future and you know, and as battery technology improves, and I keep reading papers about 
how they're you know on the verge of different breakthroughs and they're just waiting to figure out how to scale them up and make them commercially viable but you know electric bikes are clearly the the, the future and i'm actually quite excited about this I, I think it's i think it's quite good yeah i've been hearing about these battery breakthroughs for a long time and they never happen yeah it's still the incremental it's not like I can't, nobody can point to me and say, oh, yes, look, that day they like doubled or they went 50%. It's always these little tiny bites. So I get tired of the hypes of like, oh, now it's going to be, it's like, show me the battery. Show me the battery. <laughs> right. yeah. you know, I don't want to hear about what it's going to do. I want to hear what you've got and you can show me. Right. Oh, well, we, th there was some battery technology that the government had for the military that they were going to release, you know, it's like five years ago, like next year. Well, next year came and went, and we've never seen that secret technology that they have. <laughs> right. you know? So, I think we're we're just going to have to live with the fact that it's going to be incremental improvements that, as we go. You know, the batteries, as we all know, they need to get lighter and have more capacity. That's the that's the magic bullet that makes them successful machines in the future. Yeah, that you that you know, if you could, if you had a five hundred mile range. You pretty much wouldn't care how long it took to recharge, if, you know, like recharge it overnight. Yeah. You know? But if you have a hundred mile range and you're not just riding around the city, you care a lot about what the range is. That's a that's a big deal. As you say, it varies so dramatically. In other words, um, you know, if you've got a 500 mile range, there are definitely riders and, you know, terrains out there you know, sort of riding that thing on a 250 mile loop around, you know, the 33 and Pine Mountain and what have you. Let me tell you, a 500 mile battery is going to be burned up in 250 miles. Right. Because it's all, it's all hills and, you know, and what have you. And it's all full throttle stuff. So but ha like you say, having a 500 mile range, that would keep everybody satisfied, even the hardest riders, you know, in the in the in the hilliest terrain. Right. Yeah, having a 200 mile range on the flat is probably not that good still. So yeah, so so no. Yeah, I I totally agree with you that we need to get the battery technology sort of better before we really fully accept it, but yeah, it's okay. I I I don't hate the idea. It's okay. It's coming along. Exactly. But it, and and of course, the next generation of riders like Avery, she loves it. She thinks this bike she doesn't have any need any excuses or any justification or anything about the bike all she knows is that she likes riding it a lot yeah and that's that's that is a successful product when you have that kind of uh, you know the user has that kind of reaction to yeah. it yeah i mean you do realize that in 20 or 30 years there will be a generation of motorcycle riders who have grown up on motorcycles who have no concept of starter buttons and clutches and gearboxes and what have you right just like you and I have no concept of spark advance before kickstarting the bike. Right, exactly. Did you ever have a, a kickstart street bike? Yes. Yeah, absolutely, I did. I mean, I had I had I had street bikes with kickstarters, but not, but they all had electric starters. Um. Yes. Yes. No. I've I've had bikes with uh, with kickstarters. Actually, I mean, they were all my my sort of starter bikes. You know, my Harley Davidson two hundred and fifty was a kickstarter. It was kickstart only. You had to kickstart it. It's only kickstart, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, my uh, my Honda ninety, um, you know, my S ninety was, you know, kickstart only. And that was kind of the end of that that era. When I first came to the states, 
my first bike was a was a beaten up old Honda CBX, and there was something wrong with the starter motor on it, and it didn't have a kickstarter, so it was bump start only. <laughs> I had to I had to like run along next to it and jump on side saddle just to go anywhere. Well, well just is it, come on, it's LA always just parked up on top of a hill. No, it wasn't. I was I was living down in you know Venice at the time. Uh oh, <laughs> no hills there. Yeah, it made for a it made for a very interesting um you know taking my test that's for sure <laughs> oh yeah you told me that story that's a great one <laughs> and anyway but yeah the electric bikes i think it's it's all good i mean there's definitely like you say we're not fully sold but we're we're kind of getting there yeah we are getting there yeah <laughs> all right hey thanks a lot i i really appreciate it i think it's it's exciting to talk about the future and it's great to hear of little avery just having the time of her life yeah. i love it yeah she did it's awesome all right. Yeah. Awesome. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. All right. Bye. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully-fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true supersport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine, inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque, providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. In this second segment, I chat with one of my Aussie motorcycle industry friends, Dale Schmidchen. Dale has worked for most of the major moto factories globally during his career, and his take on his CF Moto ADV bike is pretty interesting. Beyond that, one of his many projects is currently helping to sell the world's most expensive motorcycle, a Harley V-Rod worth around $50 million. Yes, that's 50 million with an M. Dale also owned a race team in the 1990s and helped bring several well-known Aussie racers to the world stage. He's a very modest, matter-of-fact guy, but I always really enjoy chatting with him. I hope you enjoy listening. Incidentally, if you've got around 50 million burning a hole in your pocket and you fancy owning the so-called Mona Lisa of motorbikes, contact us at producer at ultimatemotorcycling.com and we'll put you in touch with Dale. The, the guy I was just talking with is a very famous, or famous to, in a certain circles, artist called Jack Armstrong. And I might have mentioned Jack in the past, but he's got a, uh, a Harley V-Rod on the market at the moment for around $50 million. $50 million? $50 million. It's called the Mona Lisa of motorcycles um, because his art sells in that sort of category. Now, he's the most famous artist you've probably never heard of. Uh, but he sold pieces to uh, you know, the, the Alice Walton of the Walmart family, uh, Jack Maher, Ali Barber, etc. 
And these pieces have gone for large amounts of money. And anyway, some time back, 10 years ago, he, he painted a uh, V-Rod. And that's actually how I met the guy. I was, I was at the uh, Barrett-Jackson auction in uh, uh, Orange County. And I was there uh, just taking photos of cars for, for export uh, in the current position I was in then. And I saw this bike at the DuPont registry stand as I'm walking in. I'm thinking, that's got to be one of, in their art, is very subjective. At the time, I went, that's probably the ugliest motorcycle I've ever seen. Don't tell Jack. <laughs> right. And anyway, I spent the entire day at Barrett Jackson taking photos of hundreds and hundreds of most wonderful cars and some motorcycles. And I'm literally tired. I'm, I'm contemplating the 405 North as I'm, as I'm leaving. And I'm thinking, God, I've got to get out of here. It's going to be hours to get home. And uh, I saw this motorcycle again. I thought, I've got to get some photos of this. No one's ever going to believe it. And at that point, the bike was valued, this is 2012, was valued around three and a half million. Um, and I, so I took some photos. The next thing you know, this guy pops up next to me and starts asking me the questions and, and telling me, that's the most expensive vehicle here today. Did you know? And I said, no, I didn't. What makes it so expensive? And I'm, I'm glad I didn't say what I was thinking at the time. And it turns, <laughs> out, it turns out I was talking to Jack Armstrong, the artist. And uh, anyway, like one thing led to another, and here we are 10 years later, and we're best friends. Um, anyway, he put it back onto me that uh, you know, he would like to sell that motorcycle. And uh, who do I know? And look, you know, I've talked to him that, you know, it's at $50 million, it's no longer a motorcycle. It has to be viewed as art. Um, yeah. It has to, be, has to be bought by a collector that has some interest in motorcycles uh, and, and not the other way around. Um, we've got Paul Jason, who you might know in the UK, uh, actually leading that sort of subject. You know, he's the motorcycle broker. Uh, and so Paul, Paul has taken it under his wing and, and, and he's trying to sell it for Jack. Actually, we did a podcast uh, like two weeks ago with an English guy that, that uh, we met in central London. And he has a super high-end website called collectingcars.com. And of oh. course, he does, he does lots of very high-end motorcycles as well. Yeah, Ed would love it. Oh, look, so, look any, any help is always welcome. Uh, sure. You know, like uh, Jack, uh, Jack has factored in that, that there's going to be a team of people to make this happen. There's no one person that's going to make this happen. Sure. And look, Jack's one of those, as I say, he's the most famous guy you've never heard of. It's Neil, Neil Armstrong was his uncle, for instance. Wow. Yeah, that's wow. Right. <laughs> uh, he owned the most exp the world's most expensive sapphire called the Star of Queensland. This is this is all on Wikipedia. It's all legit, and there's no story to it. He taught David Bowie how to paint. Mick Jagger owns one of his paintings. Uh, Paul McCartney owns one of his paintings. He was Andy Warhol's last student. Um, in uh, you know they used to hang out at Club Fifty Four together, uh, and and it goes on and on and on. Uh, Basquiat, the 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 hottest artist today. Um, who unfortunately passed away in the late eighties, uh, used to sleep on uh, Jack Armstrong's couch, you know, because he had the, had no money. The guy was homeless on the street. Jack at least had a couch the guy could uh, sleep on. So, uh, I mean, the stories of this guy is amazing. There's photos of him with Lars Minnelli and Lisa Marie Presley, and you know, the fact that he's sold paintings to people like Jack Maher and and, and Alice Walton, and uh, you get the guy as an interview, and you think, how, how do you not have a TV show or or a, you know, a, a statue to yourself or, or something. And because he's a rebel, he, he's never ever done a, an art exhibition. He's never sold a painting by auction and he never will. 
Wow. He, he hates wow. the art industry. He, he loves art, but he hates the art industry. I bet. Wow. Mm. Switching gears on you, another of your, you know, things that you're very positive about is this new, well, not new to you, but I guess new to America, Chinese motorcycle brand, CF Moto. Yes. And I saw you riding a really interesting ADV bike when I was in Brisbane. Yeah, the, the, the new 800 MT range. Uh, look, I first heard about that about two and a half years ago. And from that moment onwards, I've been hassling the, the importer who, look, as I say, I've got to make a, a declaration that I don't work for the importer. I, uh, I don't represent the brand. But some time ago, yes, I did. So there's still a friendly connection. But I, as soon as I heard about this 800 come out, I thought, well, that just sounds like the perfect bike. And at that stage, we knew very little about it. Um, and then they released it probably four or five months ago here in Australia. And they have not been able to keep up with demand. Um, the bike is literally optioned as a standard bike to the Wazoo. There are features on this bike you don't get on a similar bike for $10,000. And the question is, okay, so who's CF Moto? If you've never heard it before, Again, it's the greatest overnight success story that it's been 40 years in, in, in uh, the process. Uh, they've been on sale here in Australia for nearly 20 years. And they've done, you know, they, they don't report the figures, but I know they've done somewhere around about 80 or 90,000 sales, you know, over that time, which has been pretty good. The 800 MT is just, well, it, it shows the fact that it was built in, in the KTM factory. It, it's everything you would expect out of KTM. If you're happy with KTM, you have to be happy with CF Motor. It, unless you're selling KTM, then you'd be saying, oh my <laughs> God, the CF Motor guys get so much more for their money. <laughs> so these things are made in the KTM factory in China, I take it. Yeah, and, and look, just to explain a bit further, uh, CF Moto uh, started out as a real estate and a, a loco manufacturing company that got into motorcycles. Uh, they've since released those other two parts of their business. Now they concentrate purely on motorcycle manufacturing and ATV and UTV and side-by-sides as well, which is probably their greatest strength. Um, they, they, I don't think they even do scooters anymore. It's, it, they've really become a Western motorcycle brand. Um, about nine years ago, KTM invested into them as their Chinese or the, the China-based partner. And they started a company called KTM R2R, um, which is, as KTM fans would probably realize, uh, ready to race is their, their slogan, but they couldn't use that in China. Someone already owned it. So they started KTM R2R. There was a big blank piece of land across the road from the uh, CF Motor factory uh, last time I was there. There's now a, a KTM factory on that piece of land. And there's so much cooperation between CF Motor and KTM. The fact that you know all of the 790 range now comes out of China, everything yeah, it's for the world. Um, KTM dealers have CF Moto on their floor essentially. Uh, look, it, it was a little bit the same. So, if you rewind the clock back 20 years ago, I, I got involved with a brand called Hyosum out of um, Korea, South Korea, and they were very much involved with Suzuki, and uh, that's how we launched Hyosum into Australia. As you sure. go into a Suzuki dealer and you'd say, Look, uh, are you interested in making more money? Do you want a new brand? Are you looking for a quality thing? And you couldn't get past the, the fact that they thought they were made in China, but then you'd point to some of the bikes on their floor and you say, you've got a, it says Suzuki on the tank, but I can tell you that comes out of the Hyosung factory. 
So it's 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 similar with KTM and CF Moto. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, Boeing engines are made in China. You know, there's a lot of things come out of China that you don't realize that the computer we're talking on today is made in China. The underwear you probably wear it's come out, comes out of China. It's, it's uh, <laughs> The iOS device that I'm talking to you on is made in China, without a doubt, yeah. The Chinese can create quality if they're motivated to. If they're not motivated to, and it's all about price, to me, it all sort of comes down to the old adage of it can either be quick, good, or cheap. You've got to pick two. Yes. And, you know, it, that's very much the sort of situation with China. If you're prepared to pay a little bit more for it, they, they'll produce a good quality product. Oh, look, I've been through factories in China uh, that literally had dirt floors. Uh, there was one factory I went through, I won't mention their name, uh, that reminds me of those comedies you see of North Korea where, um, you know, like uh, they keep turning the lights off as you move from one section to the next. It's like a stage show. Uh, I've been through China factories like that where literally there was, you know, they the switched the heating on five seconds before you got into the room. Uh, and so I'm sure the minute I left, they turned all the lights out. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> CF Moto, I first went there in 2011. And uh, I just recently come across a pack of about 300 photos I took at the time. Uh, I was utterly impressed. Now, I'd seen factories throughout Europe. I've seen factories throughout Asia, uh, the US. And I've got to tell you that, you know, my first impressions of the CF Moto factory was this is something different. Uh, right. It was it was clinically clean. Everything was organised. Everyone was well dressed. Everyone was happy. Uh, there was they actually had surprisingly health and safety concerns, which uh, is something you don't see a lot in Asia. Uh, no. This was a factory uh, that was big into training. You know, I mean, I've got a training certificate upstairs of how how we rebuilt a, an ATV engine. You know, and, and they were they were interested in making sure that everyone was aware of of how the factory works, uh, how you know, even as a salesperson, even though I'm not too incompetent technically, uh, they're making sure that even a salesperson can explain how a piston goes up and down, uh, not just the colors, <laughs> right. not just the colors it comes in. So uh, it, it was it was a factory that was building a future. You know, playing really the long game. Uh, CF Moto are going to be, uh, I can say it. They're getting there slowly. I mean, it's been frustrating uh, watching the models come out. But on the other hand, I've dealt with other Chinese brands that rush things to market and everyone pays the, uh, the price for it. So. Sure. Oddly enough, they've just launched in America. Um, I went to the MotoGP event at Austin a couple of months ago and they had a display there and literally they were brand new in America. Um, and in fact, one of our staff members is at the launch on the East Coast right now. The only snag is, from what I understand, the CF Moto motorcycles haven't yet passed emissions in California. But I mean, they're using KTM designed motors, so of course they will pass emissions if they want, if they're sufficiently motivated. But I would imagine the administrative and legal, um, you know, issues to get to get something eligible for California must be monumental. Yes. So it's probably just a matter of time. Okay. Justice process. Uh, I mean, the uh, California's. I, I know they've got the best intentions at heart, but sometimes they do make things a little bit more difficult just because they can. Um, <laughs> it, it really is bureaucracy. You gotta love it. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, we, we've got the same situation in Australia uh, with with the state of New South Wales that like to think they're you know they're the the guardians of our galaxy. 
uh, <laughs> and I'm sure every every part of the world has their you know, their their Karen state that wants to uh, completely you know take charge for the uh, and an apology to all the Karens too. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> sure, but but at, but at the at the end of the day, I mean, getting down to the nitty gritty, the the CF Moto, I had a quick look at it. You know, when you were riding it, it did not look like a Chinese manufactured bike. This looked like a, you know, you were you were talking about panel finish on it and and that kind of stuff. Uh, pa panel fit, panel, panel fit. fit. You know, so it looked if you looked at and, and I hate to say it, but some of the Japanese brands have even seen that are. Uh, you know, trying to be made to a price at the moment which is difficult right uh you know look some of the welds are very average some of the uh you know some of the gaps between the panels is, is not even um you know and it is that is that a big problem at the end of the day probably not but you know there's no uh, there's no reason why um it, it couldn't be right um the uh it it, it, it just it, it's just attention to detail right you know just a, a final quality control and I uh, I think really honestly that it shouldn't be hard to achieve in, in 2022, especially with with so much uh, robot production uh, and you know the high quality of mass production. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of specification, I mean their bikes are absolutely amazing. I mean it comes with cruise control and traction control and all the electronic suite. I mean it comes with everything that you would expect from a high quality motorcycle. It does. I'd probably have to. Um, just qualified traction control is still one thing that they're uh, yet to release. But yeah, look, the, all the oh, levels okay. of a, a, ABS, uh, you know, the high quality uh, KYB suspension. Uh, you, you're right. You know, the, the, the wheels are using Akron rims. Um, they have, uh, you know, tire pressure sensors as well as temperature sensors in them. They come with Pirelli tires. They, uh, you know, they, <laughs> they come with heated seats, <laughs> heated grips. Uh, hand guards, uh, adjustable screens, uh, GPS features, uh, everything's Bluetooth. And, and the list goes on and on and on. It, it, it comes standard with a bash guard uh, for the engine for people who want to go off-road a little bit. It comes with a huge range of available extras. And, and you can load this thing up with, with the, the parts catalogue and, and it's still less than the, uh, the nearest opposition that comes without all the options. It, right. You know, look, it's it, it, and a three-year warranty. Too, by the way, uh, if you if you get it serviced, and the conditions may change from country to country, but in Australia, if you have this serviced at a genuine CF Moto dealer, it's a three-year unlimited distance warranty, uh, which you can't ask for more than that. And look, I have had the odd issue, uh, like, and nothing big, but for instance, the engine check light came on the other day, and I, I took it down to my local dealer. And, you know, within 10 minutes, they plugged everything in and found out what it was. And it was an O2 sensor on, on the, uh, the exhaust. Uh, not a problem. One's already been ordered and I'll, I'll go down and it'll probably take them half an hour. And uh, everyone's happy. Everyone's smiling. I'll, they reset it and I, I wrote home. No problem at all. It, I've never had a, an issue in that area either. Uh, so it's a, look, wow. it, 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 it's, a, it's a good brand. It, it, you know, some people will never be convinced on... Uh, you know, buying something, you know, that's not union or uh, maybe not European even. But look, I oh. can only say that whoever launched Kawasaki uh, and painted them green and got away with it 50 years ago was a genius. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> this is, this is a, as strange sounding as Kawasaki and they're not green. 
Uh, actually, <laughs> they're really amazing motorcycles. So, look, people can be convinced over time. Yeah, for somebody to be able to buy a really decent spec motorcycle that's finished properly for two thirds or three quarters of the price that that uh, any competition is is going to make a, they, these guys are going to get sales without a doubt. Totally, and, and look, you know, you look at KTM being the nearest opposition. Uh, the, the friendly opposition, right? You know, do they have anything, anything to worry about? And the answer is probably not, because the uh, the sort of person that I found buys the CF Moto is the guy that was probably not in the market for another few years anyway. Uh, okay. You know, the KTM does have better suspension with WP. It does, sure. uh, you know, have have a few good advantages which you can sell over the CF Moto. Uh, the CF Moto appeals to the sort of person who has a budget, uh, doesn't quite have enough for their dream BMW or Africa Twin or, or or something else on the market. And those sort of people have always aspired to that sort of bike are probably going to get that bike anyway. Yeah. Uh, the 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 MT800 has, has been a runaway sales success uh, to a kind of a very unique demographic. Uh, the guy that doesn't care what their friends say, you know, because like, there was, still will be a lot of peer group pressure about buying a Chinese brand motorcycle, uh, no matter who who they're involved with or sure. how good they are. It's, it's just it, it's seen as a bad thing. But at the end of the day, if it gets people onto motorcycles and and keeps people in into motorcycling or helps them move up from you know they've maybe been on a, a beginner machine for several years and they'd really like to step up, but like you say, they don't have you know, 15 or 20 grand to buy their dream machine. So suddenly they're looking at, wait a minute, I can get this for less than 10. Indeed. It, it, it's, it offers something unique uh, to a unique customer. Um, Good. The only thing I would say as a, uh, as, as someone who, you know, was looking from the dealer's perspective, uh, the resale values of the other bikes are likely to be slightly dented uh, once people accept the CF Moto as, you know, and it's yet to be proven. I mean, it's only been out six months. Right. You know, like uh, we don't see anything happening, uh, you know, or sorry, I don't see anything happening in terms of the, the resale value plummeting for any, you know, technical reason or finish reason or anything similar. Um, they're certainly not going to go broke. Like it's not going to be like owning a Buell a few years ago where, right. you know, the, the, the company's always in trouble and the value plummets. There's it, none of that planned. Uh, or, or on the horizon. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I, I would think that's the only thing. As, as the bike proves itself in the market, uh, the resale values for some of the other bikes may take a bit of a dent. Right. Okay. Well, interesting. It'll be very interesting to see where it goes in the States and, and, and so on. And I look forward to riding yeah. my first one. Well, just be prepared, too. There's a, uh, a thousand coming out soon. <laughs> Right, and well, look, you know, the, coming back to the KDM thing is they bought the uh, the tooling for the LC8 engine. Uh, okay. So now there is, there is a police bike that CF Moto make that is a 1290, uh, which you know weighs a ton. Now, I'm sure it makes a fantastic police bike, but it absolutely weighs a ton. It's over 300 kilos, and uh, you know I'm hoping they never release that in the West. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, but there is a an LC8 version uh, of this bike coming up, I would think, in the next twelve to eighteen months. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You've had a had a really um, had an interesting career, or you are continuing to have an interesting career. I mean, you have 
worked for a lot of different manufacturers, haven't you? I <laughs> I don't know anyone that's worked for any anymore. Um, that doesn't mean I've made any money. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, no, let's be real. It's the motorcycle business. Nobody makes any money in the motorcycle business. <laughs> no, when you said the word career, I was, I, was, I was trying to do that little motion with your fingers, you know, like kind of career. You know, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's been an experience. Uh, I've worked all over the world, uh, worked for some of the more no, well-known brands. Yeah, look, it, 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 I could probably write a... A book on all the little stories um, but it's it's been fun you know like bottom line is it's been fun and i've met some very interesting people yeah yeah there's not too many people that you you don't know from from my experience and certainly in australia <laughs> yeah well it's, it seems that way a few of the few of them sort of recognize me by face and don't really remember my name but uh, there's others that duck and cover when they see me coming but um you know <laughs> yeah in, in in general um yeah there's I've, I've had I've had, had an involvement with most people and most things that are you know long term players in in the the sport or the or the industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I know that uh, you know you've been a fan for a long time and you've certainly been very interested in racing. And I know at one point you owned this. Do you still own it? A, a TZ two fifty Yamaha that appeared. TZ two fifty B. The two. Oh gosh, I wish I still owned it. <laughs> I wish I still owned it. Um, in fact, look, you know, when I might have some spare time one day in the future, I'd like to track that bike down. Yeah, yeah. That that particular bike was one of those uh, magic motorcycles, which um, you know I bought for the nineteen ninety one season here in Australia, and I put a young young guy on it. Uh, had a bit of a dream team, you know, but look, to be honest, for for personal reasons, that didn't sort of work out. Even though it was second in the championship. Um, it was just mutually decided to call it quits. So you bought the bike not to ride yourself, oh, got but it. To, to 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 create a create a team, um, a race team, and 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 bring somebody up, bring somebody's career up. It's always it was always the dream. It's not the dream anymore, but it was always the dream in the old days. To you know, everyone was looking for the next Daryl Beatty back then. Daryl Beatty came along, yeah. and he literally lived down the road from where where I am here in Brisbane. And uh, right. I, knew, I knew him at the time, and he, he, he used to talk all the time about TZs. He had a TZ350. Uh, there was ex, uh, an ex, uh, no, Michael Dowson owned it. He was a famous Australian racer. And uh, so we were, we, were, we were always talking about TZs or TZs. And uh, so anyway, when I uh, finally got this TZ, TZ250B, uh, the idea was to try to find another Daryl Beatty because like, you know, Daryl made a lot of money and you know went to interesting places and. I thought, well, maybe it's the right. Right, right thing to do. So we, fa I found, I found a young rider who'd done very well the year before, and you know there was anyway there was a falling out. We're best of friends now, I think. Um, but you know, a lot, <laughs> of time, a lot of times passed. Um, then the bike sat around for a while. Put a local racer on it, and we went down to Eastern Creek and had a bit of fun. And then it sort of sat around for a while. Then I put another rider on it called Matt Malad, who uh, you know. He'd been, <laughs> He'd finished the Australian 250 production championship. It, there were six rounds. He'd won it in five. So the suggestion was to put him on to the sixth round uh, to try to circumvent that system of one year, you've got to ride one class. Next year, you've got to ride the next class. The next year, you know, and after four years, you'd be riding superbikes. Plan was with Matt, who was always in a hurry to try to get him onto uh, superbikes, you know. And his mechanic, uh, Frank Pons, uh, had those sort of plans and you know, they worked really well together as a team. Uh, 
So Frank looked after the bike. Matt looked after the racing. I, just, I was a passenger for, for that. And he was up to, like, in the top five for, for the Australian Championship on for the last round at Phillip Island, which surprised everyone. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, he's on the Kawasaki endurance bike for the Phillip Island six-hour. Yeah. Next year for 1992, he uh, rode the Australian Superbike Championship for Kawasaki. Nice. He was just an extraordinarily aggressive, you know, rider and clinical thinker. I mean, it was really impressive the way he he just managed his career. He set the tone for every rider I've ever judged ever since. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't think anyone really ever understood Matt besides Matt. Uh, <laughs> maybe not even not not even his mechanic brain. He, uh, I first met Matt uh, while he was riding the 250 production bike, and I'd, I'd watched him race at Wanneroo in West Australia for I think it was the it was round number three, if I remember rightly. And he, and he won the race by 20 seconds. And look, this is the days where you know, <laughs> everyone's there. I mean, there's some legends came out of that um, out of that series. And here's Matt in his first year, you know, just got over a broken collarbone for about the sixth time, you know, working out where the limit was on these bikes. Uh, and he he won this race by about 20 seconds. And I, I was, we were walking around the <laughs> Adelaide track. And I, I said to him, hey, that was a fantastic ride you had last week. And he said, no, it wasn't. What, what do you mean? He said, oh, I could have won it by 40 seconds. And I was like, he was hard on himself from day one. And he was, look, it was a great attitude. Uh, yeah. To never be to never be happy with your current best. You get complacent. And that was not Matt. It, Matt was never complacent. And, uh, you know, we stayed in touch. And then obviously it culminated to that, you know, him riding that bike in the sixth round and doing really well and moving on, which was great. Uh, but Matt is super laser focused. Um, yeah, he he could. It, it was like some of the things Barry Sheen used to do with mind games. He could say some words that would totally disarm his opposition, and <laughs> they weren't by accident. He 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 would have already thought about those things. Uh, it, it it was it was fantastic to, to watch. He he was absolutely super determined. And look, was he the most talented guy out there? It's debatable, but he was the most determined guy by a, a long way. A long way. And, and, it, and it paid off. Yeah. I mean, of his sort of peer group, probably the guy with more talent than he had, of course, was Anthony Gobert. Did you ever, did you get, ever get involved with Anthony <laughs> at all? Or? Yes. <laughs> I was the first guy ever to, to ask, do you need a manager? Right. <laughs> to which he sort of laughed. And uh, I used to deal a lot with his dad, Steve, and his, his uh, mum, Sue. And, uh, you know, clearly they were his management team. <laughs> and look, could I could I, could I have been his manager? The answer is hell no. Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't have worked out. Uh, but look, he, I remember his first ever race again at Wanneroo, uh the year after was wet, 1992. And everyone was sitting in the pits waiting for the rain to stop, you know, because it's just pointless going out. But here's Gobi out there. He's just absolutely going sideways in every corner. He's, he's, he's lighting the thing up. You know, this is the NSR 250 Honda. <laughs> and round, round the back of the circuit, he finally loses it, right? And it's it's a wet crash, so it's it, it, it's just high-sided him off, and he's sliding along, literally sitting up, sliding along, laughing. You could hear him laughing through his helmet from the other side of the track. He said, that was the most fun ever. Let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> right? He, he was just crazy. Yeah. Uh, and the year before, year before that, when he was still riding uh, Supercross, I, uh, I put on the Brisbane Supercross with uh, a guy that, uh, called John Fenton 
and he, he ran the Supercross Series up, up and down the East Coast. And his 16-year-old Anthony gave it, and he was, again, mind games. He knew that we all of, all of us grown adults were just clamouring to have him come to the events. We paid him $6,000 to, uh, to just appearance fee. <laughs> and look, it was, there were some fantastic international riders at that event. And they were all doing well in the heats, et cetera. And, you know, Goey was just, he, he didn't like something about the race. So I forget what it was with the lighting or something. So he's literally rolling over the jumps and not getting any air, et cetera. And he's just, you know, taking the piss. <laughs> so because we'd paid him $6,000, he was the promoter's choice to go through the final. And then, so the final's where the money is. So, <laughs> so in, the, in, the, in the final, he almost lapped second place. He, would, he just like, would lit the thing up and just went nuts. And, uh, you know, it just showed everyone that you're wasting your time. This is Anthony Govett that we're talking about. He was he was amazing to watch. Um, real loose unit, but, gosh, yeah. the most the most talented rider I've seen to date. Arguably, yeah. And and, yeah, he, and he, your, yeah. your, your TZ, astoundingly, the magic bike got ridden. Oh. Didn't you say that Troy Corsa rode it? Uh, Troy Corse was meant to ride it. He, he was the entire reason I bought the bike in the first place. Uh, and look, when it when it was realised that Peter Jackson had signed uh, Troy for the year after, and look, they were a much bigger team. I could do more for him than I ever could. Uh, what the other person interested in getting him on the bike was was Wayne Gardner, who wow. was also from the same area, same area of Wollongong. And uh, <laughs> so we kind of colluded on this. You know, realised Peter Jackson was going to get his um, his, his nod. So cheekily, I got a letter of intent signed by Troy. Which <laughs> I, I, I can't remember really what I was thinking at the time, but I faxed it through to Yamaha Australia, uh, just saying that, look, I've got his signature. They immediately upped the offer with cash. And uh, you know, <laughs> so he, 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 he rode for um, Peter Jackson uh, the next year, and then he was on his way, which was great to see, because you know, Troy's a fantastic guy. He is. Uh, yeah, I, I met him point, once. He's loving that. Great guy. He is. He is. And he's really grounded, uh, really down to earth. You know, and so was his family at the time. And, and uh, oh, they probably still are. But, I mean, they're, they're just a really good guy. It was, it was great to see him you know, yeah. become a two-times world champion. The, uh, there was another guy who bought the bike. Uh, it was Bruce Anstey. And I believe he took it to the older van that did pretty well. Wow. Uh, and I came across an old letter the other day. Uh, Beautifully written by a young guy called Simon Craper, who <laughs> 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 obviously went on to bigger and better things as well. And uh, he, he, he expressed the interest in wanting to ride for my for my team and, and ride this bike. And look, I don't know if Simon remembers, but at some point uh, in the future, I'll I'll take that letter along to a Grand Prix and I'll I'll uh, get him to sign it again. You know, uh, yeah, whatever. What was that? Nineteen ninety-one. So thirty something years later. So. Right. You need to open the conversation with Simon. I'm still waiting for you to come and ride my bike. Um, are you coming? <laughs> you know, I, I expect you to turn up next week in your letter. <laughs> yeah, well, if, if we could find that bike again, look, who knows where it is? It, it, it probably got turned into a sound of single or something by the end of the 90s. Uh, right. You know, uh, those were the, t the times we lived in back then, or who knows where it is. But um, it, it would be nice to see that bike. And I've, I've got lots of photos of it. Awesome. We, uh, we did something spe special with the wheels. There was an Aprilia out at the time that had multicolored wheels, which was so radical in 1991. 
uh, I, t I took it to the uh, their local painters and I said, look, can you replicate this? And they went, we'll give it a try. And it came back fantastically. So as it used to, you know, go down the straight at 260 k's an hour, the wheels used to pulsate. You know, like no one had ever seen it before. Uh, oh, wow. And, and, and of course, the next year, everyone painted their wheels different colours. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah. going to have to send us one of those pictures and uh, I'll put it in the show notes. That's awesome. Yeah, How exactly. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, from from sort of, you know, crazy high speed on the tracks. Well, I mean, clearly you're a world traveler, but you're a very much an Asian traveler and ride around Thailand on a 150. Yeah, yeah. All of these years that we've been involved in the industry and, and around motorcycle racing, you know, a lot of my own riding sort of took a bit of a back step and, and everyone sort of forgot that I actually rode a motorcycle and, and that's what, you know, sort of keeps you going every day. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I walked away from it, but, you know, it was more of a rediscovering, uh, you know, in the last 10 years. And I worked for, uh, for a good company over in, in New Zealand up until the middle of 2015. But uh, look, to be honest, I was working like 80 hours a week and it nearly killed me. So when I uh, tossed that in and, and came back to Australia, I was a bit lost. I didn't know what to do. And I, I thought it, it came to me like just in, in a flash, I've got to go back to Thailand. Uh, and you know ride a scooter and i didn't even know where it was going to take me so 2015 i uh, you know it was the first first real tour i did i mean i'd worked, i'd lived there in 2009 and you know like i was, I was working for a, a carbon fiber factory that makes all the carbon for, for triumph and aprilia bmw ktm uh etc and, and mercedes and audi and ferrari and it was the, the oem factory for, for those guys wow and I looked at the map and I was like, yeah, Poi Pet, it's on the border of Cambodia. And it's apparently there's casinos there. And I, I don't mind having a, a game of, of poker or, um, or blackjack if, if available. So uh, I, I announced to the office, like, okay, I'm going to ride my little, at that stage it was only a 115 Yamaha. And I was like, I'm going to ride that to the border. And they said, oh, you're crazy. And it just spurred me on to want to go and do it more. <laughs> so uh, that was that was a fantastic day, you know, riding riding the border and back. So when I was thinking in 2015, what should I do? There was only one thing I could think of, and that's like get up to Thailand and ride a ride a scooter. And look, I uh, I was coming out a bit of a dark place at that point, and you know, then you'd come into Thailand and, and it was just bright sunshine and happiness and and happy people and beautiful food and, and you know great weather and you know by the time I'd arrived from Bangkok to Phuket. Uh, it took me three days to get down there. I wasn't in a hurry. So I arrived down there, my mate Ian, uh, he said, do you realize you're smiling? I said, no. He said, well, we were talking on Skype the week before. He said, you look like you're about to open a vein up, but now you're smiling and happy. Right. And to, so to me, to, to me, that part of the world's always been that I'm happy. And uh, so I've been up there a few times since and done scooter tours, uh, you know, usually for the Anzac Day ceremony on April the 25th at uh, the Hellfire Pass, which is <laughs> fascinated with the Burma Railway. Uh, it's such a sad story and such a such a monument to mankind. When the 80th anniversary of Singapore's falling uh, was this year, I, it was like there was only one chance I, I had to go. I had to go and, and do it. I couldn't find anyone wanted to travel under COVID with me, so that was fine. I uh, lobbed into Bangkok, rented a 150cc uh, uh, scooter, and away I went. I uh, did three and a half thousand kilometers in 14 days. 
stayed in places that you'd need a really good map to find. I rode on roads that, you can again, you'd have to, you know, close up in Google Earth to really see that there's, there's even a road there. Wow. And it was just the most brilliant time ever. So even on a 150, the roads are still exceptional. And... Yeah, well, I mean, it would be better on something a little bigger, to be honest. The, the, wor- the worst thing about the scooter is, uh, you know, the size of the wheels, you know, because that does limit a little bit where you can go. Right. But this was the new Honda 150 ADV, which is, you know, just they call it an adventure scooter. Sure. Which uh, which was, which was okay. Uh, and maybe some different profile tyres on it would have made it better because these were just road tyres. But, um, yeah, like I, I'd packed for pretty much three weeks in two, uh, two small backpacks. You know, you've got a little bit of room under the seat. But, um, you know, I put one backpack on my back and you slack the straps off so it just sits on the seat loose. And you've got the little hook uh, between your legs uh, on, on the scooters where you put the other backpack. Oh, right. And it was great. You know, I had no GPS. I'd, I'd planned the trip the night before, work out where I was going and, and uh, just follow the front wheel. It was fantastic. Wow. That sounds absolutely awesome. Yeah, it was. I mean, obviously, Thailand has a reputation for beaches, but it sounds as though, I, I've never been, it sounds as though there's a lot more to Thailand than just beaches. Oh, look, the beaches are fantastic. You know, like, uh, there are areas. I mean, if, if your entire view of Thailand was through the eyes of Club Med or, or you know, uh, if you went to just Patong Beach in Phuket or just Pattaya Beach uh, south of um, uh, Bangkok, probably the beaches are pretty average, to be honest, because, yeah, I've got to say the pollution in those areas can be a little bit overwhelming. Wow. Uh, Okay. However, you don't need, don't need to go far south of either of those two areas, and then you've got these beautiful white sandy beaches, and you you can have them to yourself even, because uh, the Thai people aren't really big, you know, the the outside of the capital cities aren't really big into just hanging around beaches. I mean, they've got things to do every day. Right. Whereas, uh, you know, which is good. Again, there's going to be restaurants there, and there's two two different. Thailand's like there's two different Bali's. I'm sure there's two different everything everywhere you travel. Sure. If you were to go there for a week to two weeks on a normal holiday, your view of this place would be different than if you stayed there for six months to twelve months or longer. Right. So, so you, you tend to not want to go around where the tourists are, and you can go a bit further south or a bit further away from these areas, and find better food for a quarter of the price with no tourists, uh, no no parking dramas, no police, no whatever. You can just live a life. And look, it's hard to say, you know, in 2022 in the Western world with so much, you know, oppression with rules and, and need, need to conform and all of these things. It just, no, you head a little bit further out of the tourist areas and you're just free again, you know. And Thailand literally translates to the land of the free. Really? Yeah, that's that's exactly 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 what it means, and it, you know, there's nowhere's perfect. There's nowhere's completely free. Sure. Um, but Thailand, Thailand's a little bit like America used to be, you know, which always used to impress me. Right. You can kind of do whatever you like as long as it doesn't interfere with anyone else. Right. Now that's changed obviously a little bit in Australia and New Zealand, where people will go out of their way to find you, <laughs> and uh, you know, then, then become you know. Uh, just upset, upset with what you're doing because they can. <laughs> uh, not so much, not so much with Thailand. Thailand, it's been uh, you know, outside of the outside of the the city areas, um, it's it's still a free country. Yeah, 
and obviously very inexpensive. I mean, um, I mean, they, they, I'm oh, sure yeah. they welcome tourists. Well, this week, uh, the American dollar has uh, peaked against the uh, Thai baht. Uh, I think you're up to about 35 Thai baht now, which is, uh, that's, it's just a fantastic thing. Uh, your, your dollar goes a long way in Southeast Asia. Right. Uh, countries like Vietnam, and Cambodia, or even further. But uh, at least, at least um, why I like Thailand a little bit is the, you know, the quality of healthcare is there. People do take a lot of health, um, you know, cosmetic trips across to Thailand to get dental work done, etc. Right. Uh, so you can get get that done while you're having holiday if you like. But the uh, the quality of, of, of medical care there is exceptionally high. Uh, typically, most people speak some of, uh, amount of English, some very very well. Uh, the weather's really good. They don't have earthquakes. They don't get uh, hurricanes. They, uh, you know, that it's usually green all year round. Uh, so they don't get bushfires. It, it's kind of, it kind of. There's a lot of things that just don't happen in Thailand that they take for granted. Right. They don't get snow. They don't get snow. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's got to be got to be pretty hot and humid, though. I would think. Yeah, it is. Uh, most of the time, most of the year, um, there is a, a lot of lot of uh, expats tend to gravitate north towards Chiang Mai, or even Chiang Rai. Right. Uh, there are are a few mountains up there, which you know there are real novelties to the tyres. You know, when when what they call winter comes along, uh, it will get down to close to zero. Uh, you know, but you have got to be right on top of the mountain, and sure. you know. Look, it's really, really funny when they get the northern winds blow the colder air down from uh, the Himalayas, etc. Uh, the uh, the girls, in particular, wear these these jumpers around Bangkok. It's like twenty five degrees, but they're they're all rugged up. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's fine. It's that's them. I mean, the humidity has changed. The temperatures changed. They love they love that little cooler period. So yeah, yeah, that sounds awesome. Well, I don't know. Uh if there's much else but uh but i've really enjoyed talking to you and just hearing your various experiences about what you've been up to oh really appreciate you know the interest it's uh, it's just an ordinary life <laughs> i'd say not <laughs> <laughs> well there's still still some life left yet to go as well and they look at uh you know i'm 57 at the moment uh and i really hope that there's another 30 years of writing in me yeah uh, I hope there's another. Th I hope there's another thirty years of writing in the world. I, I, I kind of think the change is coming, uh, but again, I can't imagine in the next twenty years it changing much in in Thailand. So it's again another one of the things that just subliminally appeals. Yeah, to. yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I definitely, I think I'm going to have to put it on my bucket list. Um, and definitely, uh, you know, TJ and I are going to have to make it over to Thailand. I'd say sounds great. Well, I'd love to show you a few things when you do come. Sure, but actually, we'd we'd love to uh, to do some of the Australian backroads, uh, you know, touring as well with your friend Rusty. So, uh... oh, Rusty, Rusty's the best. And uh, look, you know, again, no one knows everything, but Rusty's got a fantastic network of people around him. Yeah, you know, which is exactly why he created that Australian backroad motorcycle touring. Yeah, uh, just. If you were looking to go somewhere, uh, someone is already in that area that can give you some advice, or someone's just done that road the week before, or sure. and they posted photos. And yeah, look, he's created something very, very special. And uh, look, he's moving, moving now into uh, organised tours, 
and yeah, you know, they've been a runaway success. Yeah. Well, it's absolutely terrific. All right, Dale. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate chatting to you. It's been really awesome. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. No problem. Thanks again for the opportunity. I look forward to part two in about five years' time. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Thanks.